Well, that was annoying. My apologies. My daughter's friend FaceTimed in and it shut off my recording. <laughs> I, I love COVID. It's great stuff. Okay. I was talking about Stephen Jay Gould and the hedgehog, the fox, and the magister's pox. Okay. In there, he says, if we go on the left, far left-hand side, it's pure hypothesis and observation. You begin to study it because you develop this hypothesis that something is happening here, and I think this is what it is. And you begin the process of studying that phenomenon, and the other you create a study that more or you know may verify what you saw or what you think you saw. And so you say, my observation isn't just my own imagination; it's a real thing that when I subject it to objective methods and measurement, it showed up. It's a real thing out there in the world. So then other people will see that finding and they'll start saying, hey, I want to see if that still works. And they replicate it and replicate it. And over the process of continued replication and refinement, what is produced out the back end, way over here on the right-hand side, is something resembling fact. And when it gets replicated and accepted and verified enough times, it becomes a fact. And in medicine and in health, there are certain things that we just know, right? We know how the immunological system typically works. We know that you have a blood type, and therefore only certain blood types can be introduced into your body. And if we don't do that, if we introduce the wrong blood type in there, then you will die, right? That you will have the following reactions. And that is irrespective of your race, religion, sexual orientation, anything. It's an objective reality that everyone will experience if it, that happens to them, right? It's not context dependent. It's not culturally relevant or uh, culturally relativist. It's a fact. That will happen to you. So when we talk about when people sort of say, well, this is a study that proves this, there's no single study that has proven anything. Okay, So be aware when people drop a single reference on you and say, here's a study that shows this. Right? That is not the case. That is not true. Right? It doesn't become fact with a capital F. Watch for people who push the issue and want to say that the truth with a capital T or fact with a capital F is achieved through one study. That's not true. Not true at all. And you need to be aware of that. And it can be when you feels like people offer no, ridiculous counter hypotheses to establish scientific fact, it can feel a bit like you uh, have to defend science. But science makes mistakes, right? And science is a self-correcting discipline that achieves, hopefully, truth. Or it's, it shoots towards truth. But there's lots of things that we have no idea of. We have very limited knowledge about. And we're still in the process of studying it. But we don't know what we don't know. One of the things related to that is an important fallacy that you need to be aware of. And this is what we mean is this, was a, this is a, an error in thinking or an error in logic And when you make it, it seems like it's a correct answer, but it's actually taken something for granted. It's assumed something that isn't there. So in medical uh, science and health, 
We have all this advancing technology. And we're able to do stuff every day. There's something new capacity that humans develop for themselves that allows them to do things they couldn't do before. And that's great, isn't it, right? I mean, people are living longer. Things that used to kill them or knowledge that they couldn't access, now they can access. So that makes it better, right? But there's something called the can-to-should fallacy. Just because you can do something doesn't mean automatically that you should do that thing. And it can even be things that appeal to us really strongly, but suddenly it creates the ability to do that requires ethical reflection. Instead of simply saying, here's something that's new that we can do, so therefore we should do it until we're told not to. That's not exactly wise. There is a bunch of questions that are raised, that develop as we find ways to know more about ourselves. Now, self-knowledge seems like one of those things that Gwyneth Paltrow would tell you is a great thing, right? And she probably has a scented candle that will achieve that for you. <laughs> but, but there's many situations in which we can have knowledge and we don't actually know how it's going to play out. I'll give you a specific example. Two friends, um, they're a couple. They, uh, for a joke, uh, last Christmas, they gave each other one of um, those genetic heritage kits, you know, where you um, give DNA samples and they can then trace your ethnic lineage. They were doing it as a joke because they wanted to, you know, they were having bets about who was the most Irish. One is one person is Chinese and one person is Indian um, from India. <laughs> but they were have they did this together as a joke to see, you know, what kind of, they were having like, oh, I bet you'll have this in your background and so forth, just as a lark, right? It's good fun. That's hilarious. I forget the name of the company, but it's like 23andMe, but it's not, it wasn't 23andMe as far as I know. But one of the things as they got the paperwork to do the initial, give the sample and begin the process was that the data could show or could offer predictive results related to genetic illnesses. So in addition to finding out how Irish you were or how much uh, uh, Mongol you were or whatever, it could also tell you if you had the genetic predisposition for uh, ovarian and breast cancer, for example. Um, and they suddenly they were panic-stricken and they called me and said, um, we don't know what to do here. And I said, well, it's a question of what will knowing do to you or for you? If knowing that is going to wreck your life, say you knew that came back, yes, you have the, I think it's the BRCA1 genetic uh, mutation. I can't remember if that's the correct one, but there's a genetic mutation um, that can be found that is a, is a great predictor or a very reliable predictor, I guess I should say, of breast and ovarian cancer. Uh, risk. And uh, it it increases your risk, doesn't matter what kind of life you live, you could be vegan, meditate, I don't know, in, have satsuma candles or whatever kinds of interventions and lifestyle behavioral things you could do to try and prevent it, 
that genetic mutation is basically saying you have a really good chance that you'll get breast or ovarian cancer uh, of the most serious varieties. What would knowing that do to the remaining years you had? Assuming, and none of them are 100%, right? None of them say, like, you have exactly five years, set your clocks, go. They just basically say you have a better than average chance or you have a better than 50% chance uh, of, of developing this. But then there's still obviously a chance that you don't. So what will be the effect on your life? And no one knows, right? How do you know? Um, you can imagine and you can think about it right now. Maybe some of you are in this kind of boat where you have risks for certain things and you, you think like, well, if I ever found out, I would do the following. I would, whatever, I would fight it. I wouldn't fight it, whatever you, whatever you feel. But it's really hard to know until you're right there, until it's your shoes, you know, that you're standing in and that's you, then you might have a better idea. But we have this knowledge. We have this ability to know, but people haven't put the proper thought into what they would do with that information. So just because we can do something doesn't automatically mean that we should. However, there does feel like this is innovation. Innovation is good, right? I mean, that's what we're told all the time. Innovation is fantastic. Well, innovations aren't always fantastic, right? Innovations are new ways of doing things. But if the thing that you're doing is not good, innovating in that way is not good, okay? Um, Innovation uh, on its own feels like a good thing, but it is not necessarily, uh, I'm not suggesting we go back to ancient times or anything. I'm just saying that just because someone says something is innovative, the university, for example, will celebrate it. They go like, we're looking for innovation, innovation. They mean, of course, innovation towards benefiting society. But we also have to be aware of innovations and judge them for do they have negative side effects and how significant are those negative side effects. Remember, Zyklon B, which was the gas that the Nazis developed, a, a system of killing people at a greater speed than it was ever found before, instead of using ovens, instead of using other things, they figured poison gas was a much better method. That was innovative, right? It was evil and horrible and wicked, but it was also innovative, just too evil. <laughs> so terms like innovative and developments and that kind of pace of technological change just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. So, for example, persistent vegetative state, right? Somebody is severely brain damaged and is being kept alive and functioning by the use of machines, right? We can, fact statement, keep people alive in that state. True, right? Artificially, true. Doesn't matter how you feel about it, that is true. Therefore, we should keep people in persistent vegetative states alive. That's a value statement, right? Just because you have the ability, the means, the motive, the equipment, all that stuff to do something doesn't mean you need to do it, right? I'm not saying we don't keep people in PVS alive. I'm just saying just because you can do something, that's not justification that you should do something. The justification for you doing something that you should is because it's the right thing to do. And you can then explain and justify yourself that this is why you're doing this. Now, statements of value come in a host of varieties. Two I wanted to specifically talk about are aesthetic and moral. 
Okay, so value is literally you place, you say this is of the higher or highest value, whatever it is, whatever quality it is. So in aesthetics, we talk about food, we talk about music, dress. These are all sensory things, right? Aesthetics deals with the senses. So then you have a pref- you have a fashion preference over another person. You have a um, a music preference different from another person, right? It's because you place, you know, it appeals to your senses. This sounds good. This makes me feel a certain way. A lot of us have connections to music that we would never have discovered independently, but it's connected to a memory that we have, and we have this fondness for this music. And everybody has songs, or a song at least, that doesn't seem to fit the rest of their musical uh, preferences and repertoire. But they like it because it's connected to, it has a memory of something. Right? And that's the same with food. Food, everybody, I I dare say all of you, each and every one of you, likes a certain food, not because you tried it in a restaurant one time without being, you know, on your own, totally context deprived, and said, oh, this is good, I've fallen in love with this food. I mean, you may have that too, but all of you, all of you, have a food that is connected to a memory that's very positive, whether it be family holidays, religious holidays, whatever. All of you have a dish that someone who loved you made for you, and you have a fondness for it rooted in that. Right? So that's a value. You place a high, appreciative, positive value to a music form or a food or what have you. Something sensory a sensory input, okay? Now, and then there's moral value. Now, here's the difference, right? An aesthetic value, you could people can say to you, um, I don't like that. That's not good. I don't like that. But nobody can objectively say, or nobody can say, this is objectively wrong. Your love of kimchi is completely wrong. It's just, it's just, ina- it's just wrong. No one can say that. You know, your type of kimchi is terrible. This type of kimchi is much better. That's a that's a statement of preference and of value. That's not a statement of fact, although people sometimes present those things as facts. But that's not what it's not a fact at all. But that moral values are often presented as a as true. Right? So and so the question is are moral values different in their kind than aesthetic values? Because you could see the problem. It's the what the textbook talks about in terms of ethical relativism or subjectivism, right? Aesthetics is a subjective value. I like this. I like that. I think they're really important, valuable, and good. I value them. You might hear, I don't know, my music, and you might say, that stuff, is garbage like that sucks uh, unbelievably bad well i think that your music sucks or i think that your food is terrible or i don't know what right we could have this discussion but none of us could ever declare ourselves the the correct the person with the correct perspective right it's a it's a matter of taste so but moral values right become a situation in which a lot of times people are projecting those as being objective the failure to do so, though, means that someone says, well, 
I find uh, rape to be a morally reprehensible behavior. Another person says, well, I, I, I don't agree. No, we, do, we don't tolerate that, right? That's, that's wrong. That's a totally different thing. Or is it, right? And then we get into this whole discussion about that. But the point is that moral values are different in that we do make arguments about the value. Certain values are, must be true, right? So we treat them differently. Now, people, philosophers in the past, of course, have said that they're not different, that the values are subjective. So when the textbook talks about subjectivism and warns us about a, the slide towards subjectivism that comes out of relativism, they are speaking to a real fear that whatever you, know, whatever you can get away with is fine. There's no problem. It's not morally problematic that you engage in harmful, damaging behavior to other people, right? Those are, that's the concern. So that's why these two values, they come in different varieties, but the difference also, right? The aesthetic value is purely subjective, but moral can't be purely subjective, right? It cannot be because then a system has no value, no work, doesn't work at all. I'm going to talk to you about a definition of ethics. Now, people have only been trying to do this for three, four thousand years in some parts of the world, maybe five thousand in some parts of the world. And in the Western tradition, sort of the Greco-Roman uh, origins, 2,500 years. Anyway, the point is we've been at this a long time. So I'm going to cut, save you thousands of years and I'm going to give you the definition of ethics. Well, no, I'm just going to give you a definition that is out there in the literature that I think is pretty reasonable summary of a whole bunch of different definitions, right? So it kind of encaptures all of that. Ethics deals with questions of right or wrong conduct and with what we ought to do and what we ought to refrain from doing. It considers issues of rights and obligations and how these are related to the social setting. Okay, how's that for a definition? And I think even more so, one of the things we should talk about too is it deals with right or wrong and conduct what we ought to do and what we ought to refrain from doing. Imagine it as a spectrum. So on the far left-hand side of you, you can imagine a position of, you must always do this. Moving to your right, you might have a more moderate position of, this is a good thing to do, but it's not obligatory. Now we get to the middle and we cross over and then we say, like, here's something you should refrain from doing or minimize and then way over on the far right is you should never do this and ethical guidance typically falls in this spectrum right somewhere along the way there's never a this is always wrong this is always right but there is this spectrum and it what it demands of us is also slightly different so for example of something you should always do i could probably without controversy say that if you can help somebody in need in a life or death situation and you can do so without risking your own life, then you should do it. Pretty, I don't, not too controversial. I'm not talking about putting your own life at risk for other people, although there's people whose job it is to do that. I'm saying you can help somebody, you can save a life by doing, not putting yourself at any risk. You should probably always have to do that right you should feel compelled to do that 
So just as a, an example, maybe then. So every year in my class, uh, and I'd like to think it's not because of my class, but every year in my class, someone passes out, faints, has an episode in class. And it's always, it involves stopping the class. And, you know, it's kind of a big a big scene, of course. Uh, and I feel really badly for the kid. And sometimes it's, uh, you, you imagine the kid never wants to come back to class. They're the ones who, who swooned in the middle of the class. So this one year in particular, I'm thinking about, we were, I was teaching in Natural Science 1. You remember that, that dungeon, that big stone dungeon of a classroom? I mean, it probably doesn't feel too bad to you right now because you're stuck in your room for nine months. But um, you remember that classroom, right? So I'm teaching in there. And I'm just making this, I'm getting to this big dramatic moment where I'm going to do some big flourish and stop talking and leave the silence and let the silence linger. It's all great. It's very dramatic, right? And I make eye contact with this girl, this woman, sitting about six seats up in one of the middle two rows, right? The two, two, two uh, rows there. She's about six seats back. So I lock eyes with her for a second. And she passes out, goes straight on her face on the concrete steps. And I thought, like, what, what just happened? And is she, is this a joke or what's going on? And I was a little bit startled. It was a little, to tell you what, I was like, is she putting me on? Like, is this a, a gag? But, you know, in about maybe half a second to a full second, I realized, like, no, she, something's happened here. So I run up the stairs to see her, right? No, she's having a seizure. And apparently this seizure, it, it, the skipping ahead, the seizure was a product or a, a reaction to a problem she's had all her life since she was a child. So she's having a seizure there on the steps, and uh, you know, lucky, lucky me. I have a, a student in the class who's a paramedic. He's a mature student. Um, he's a paramedic who was there upgrading his diploma, college diploma, to a degree. So I hear him. His name was Tim, I think, and he, Tim says, uh, "Do you need me, Ken?" I'm like, "Yes." I mean, I don't know what to do. Anyway, she comes running over. And he took charge of the situation. It was great. You know, he got the ambulance there. Um, she had had a pretty significant seizure, didn't know where she was. Um, it stopped, but she was really, didn't have a clue what had happened. Uh, she sort of like, was one minute I was in your class, next minute I was laying on the floor and everybody was standing around. And I had sent everybody out for a break. Um, so imagine the situation, right? Now, imagine the reaction is, and I don't think that was particularly heroic of me. It seemed like just something you should do, right? I'm sure some of you have said that, you know, this is big deal. You should do that. And it's like, that's right. I think it's probably relatively easy to argue that the answer was I had to do what I could. I'm not a medical professional, so I can't do anything more than go assess and get help for her from somebody who can help, who has more skills and training, right? But I can't just ignore, I can't say like, well, I'm not a real doctor, and just let her sit there and choke on her own tongue, right? Or or just leave her be. No, obviously I have to help. And if I didn't do it, someone else would have jumped up to help because they recognize the obligation to help somebody in distress. She wasn't going to hurt me. It wasn't even any risk for myself. I'm not wading into a river that may or may not be flowing fast to pull somebody out of the water where you could say, I don't know if I have an obligation to do that because of the risks and so forth and so on. That's a separate issue. We'll talk about that. There's some cool stuff we can argue about that. 
But in this situation, it's pretty straightforward. I'm in a shirt and tie. She goes down. I just have to walk over, put my hand on her shoulder, look at her, pick up my phone and call for medical assistance and medical assistance will come. Minimal obligate, minimal required of me, but it is required of me, right? And now if I were as a medical doctor, you would probably think that I had to do more. I couldn't just walk over and call 911. I should probably use some of my training and my knowledge to try and stabilize her and minimize the harm to her because I have this ability. And that's what the ambulance attendant or the paramedic in the class, that's what he did. Even though he was just a student in class and no one knew he was a, pa- a, a paramedic except me, and but he saw, you know, he saw that he had to be involved and then he took over because he has training. That's his whole job is walking into situations where there's medical distress and they don't know what it is and they have to try and, you know, triage it and they try to have to stabilize the patient. And that's exactly what he did. So and I stepped back and let him because he had more training. Right. So we both sort of fulfilled our obligations to this person. It makes perfect sense. So you can see how that would be an obligation. There'd be other examples of things that are just good to do, but not required of you. And there'd be other things where you should avoid this behavior, but it's not prohibited. And then over there, way on the right, is the prohibited. You should never do this. You should never intentionally harm other people, for example. right? We could make that argument. Now, all of this, so definition of ethics and examples, that's all great. Um, but how is this like different than law? I, I, uh, Dr. Shelley is a colleague of mine and a nice guy, and we chat occasionally. Um, and, you know, uh, he probably hears on his end, how is this different than ethics? And I hear on my end, how is ethics different than law? Well, uh, here's an example. Here's a chaos example I'm trying to come up with for you. There has been many, many things currently and in history that were legal or the law had made something illegal and morally it was reprehensible. And what happens is that people's moral outrage about it eventually provokes political action and the law gets changed. Or it becomes so evident to judges that there that what is happening is wrong that the the law is perfectly well written and stands as a legal document and has stood for a long time but it's out of touch with the moral reality of a society right it's not ethical the view of it has changed and we recognize the problems the ethical issues with things that are legal and things that are illegal so for example as black history month coming up in february so, for example, Rosa Parks, and if you don't know who that is, you need to look her up, okay? She's an important figure in the history of the civil rights movement in the U.S. with African Americans. So, Rosa Parks was ordered to move seats to free her seat up for a white man in, I think it was Selma, Alabama, in the 1950s. And she refused. That was against the law. She was arrested there's a mugshot. You can find her mugshot on the internet, right? She was charged under the laws of Alabama at the time related to racial segregation of seating in public areas. That was the law in Alabama. So she broke the law and she was arrested and prosecuted for her behavior because it was illegal. 
right? None of this is a value statement. These are all fact statements. She didn't contest that that's what happened. The The term for it is factum, meaning the, the agreed-upon facts of a case. She didn't disagree with what happened, or the facts of what happened. She said, I wasn't going to do it, though, because it's wrong. Ah, value statement, right? So you can think of examples of things that are legal that are incredibly wrong. Historically and in the present day, there are things that are considered legal or illegal that ethically very dicey, very controversial. Right? There are people who saw the legalization of medical assistance in dying as ethically reprehensible. I happen to know a couple of them. Um, and so they feel like just because it's legal doesn't make it okay. Uh, other people have no moral issue with it. In fact, they think it's a moral imperative that doctors should help those in that situation assist them with dying rather than leave them to do it themselves. Right? So there's an ethical knockdown drag out kind of argument that happens still. Now, before you get, I mean, we like to bash Americans and talk about how horrible they are and, you know, the history of America, but Canada had all that kind of stuff also, right? Laws that were morally reprehensible and were spoken out against. I mean, my God, we had, we had residential schools, right? Uh, which we've talked about, we, everybody knows about by now, right? And they know the story, right? And the story overall is really uh, a hideous black mark in history. But just even, it wasn't just extended, the, the, it wasn't that Ontario's racism or Canada's racism was strictly, it was restricted to Aboriginal Canadians. Um, I recommend to you a book. It's called Incorrigible by Velma Demerson. And it's from Wilfrid Laurier University Press. And it's a story of how in Ontario, from the 1940s until the 1970s, uh, I think it was the 70s, uh, the law, there was a law in place that stopped being enforced. It was one of those things where the law didn't get enforced anymore after a period of time. And then at some point the governments realized that it still existed and they they through they got rid of it, but it had been stopped being enforced long before this. But there is a story. Velma Demerson is a woman who went to jail because she was living with, as a spouse, an Asian man. And that was illegal in Ontario in the 1940s and 50s. That was illegal, right? So she went to jail because she had a child with her spouse, this guy she lived with, uh, for a long time, basically husband and wife, but of course they weren't legally married because you would have to go. You would have to go to a justice of the peace or a priest or a, a, a minister of some kind and say, "I want to get married," and they couldn't marry you because that's an illegal union in the province, so they wouldn't be able to marry you. <clears throat> so that's in Ontario, right? That's not in Alabama or any of these other places that we like to consider backwaters and so forth. This is right here in Ontario. Right? So this is the thing that happens. So in terms of law, although law and ethics often overlap and they, pre, they sort of say the same things are wrong and shouldn't happen, um, the process is a little different. Ethics is this pursuit we have of beyond the law. Right, We're not just limited to what's legal or illegal. We're considering the ethical value of all things. And sometimes it has the downward effect of changing law over time. Right? And I think medical aid in 
in dying was one of those examples. It was illegal for a long time to assist somebody in suicide. Uh, and it was the outcry of people saying, like, this is wrong. It uh, doesn't mean if you, it doesn't have to agree with this argument. I'm just saying the argument that won the day was this is wrong. People need medical assistance in dying in the cases of terminal illness. So we need to stop making it illegal for doctors because doctors couldn't participate in that for fear of doing significant jail time, right? Assisting with suicide was in the criminal code. They took that out or made exceptions for physicians to help. So that was a thing that was driven by this moral demand. And the government then enacted legislation to make that happen. Also, they did it because the Supreme Court recognized the moral issue, and they basically forced the government's hand in the Carter decision of 2005, which you probably have studied in Dr. Shelley's class, or if you haven't, you will soon, and we'll talk about it a bit too. Another distinction in ethics that I wanted to talk about a bit before we hang it up for the second part of this lecture is descriptive and prescriptive ethics. Okay, so descriptive ethics is a study in which somebody looks at a situation as it exists. So what they're doing is you have geographers, anthropologists, psychologists, sociologists, historians, all these people look at a moral question and look at sort of people's reaction to it or how people feel about the moral question or the ethical question. So I might do a study where I looked at, uh, look at um, doping in university sport. So remember, once upon a time, university students could play sports. And maybe I wanted to look at how student-athletes felt about drug performance-enhancing drug use. I'm, not, I'm doing it descriptively. I want to know what people feel about it there. I want to describe people's feelings and attitudes about it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I want to know what other people think. I'm studying this group of people to find out what they feel about this. Descriptive ethics is an ethical question about performance-enhancing drugs and whether they're okay or not okay, whether we should be allowed to or should not be allowed to use them. I'm asking those people to describe for me. I'm trying to describe what's going on out there. Prescriptive ethics, okay, P-R-E, S R ah, P R E S C R I P T I V E. Oh my gosh. Prescriptive. Just like a prescription from your doctor. It's a resolution. It's an answer to the problem you have. You went to the doctor, the doctor gave you a prescription. It's a way forward of how you should address this problem. Prescriptive ethics is saying, here's the resolution or here's the imperative of what's happening. Here's what we should be doing or what we should not be doing in the situation. So you're providing an answer. So in that same study about um, university students, uh, university athletes taking performance enhancing drugs, a prescriptive ethical treatment would be arguing for or against them using or being allowed to use uh, performance enhancing drugs. Descriptive Literally just describing what's happening. Prescriptive, saying, here's what should be happening in there. All right. 
I'm going to sign off for now. So you'll see two parts to this first one. And then you're going to see um, next week's is going to be uh, probably a multi-parter as well. But in total, it won't be more than a regular lecture would have been if we had had the good times to hang out together and uh, talk to each other, even in a crappy dungeon like uh, NatSci 1. All right. I hope you all have a good weekend. Uh, watch for my email, which will come for sure on Monday, I promise. I apologize for that. I will see you folks soon. Watch for also question and answer kinds of uh, videos where I'll post up sort of answers to popular questions. Um, right now I'm getting ones about what is the midterm like and how will I, how could I ensure I do as well as possible on it. I'm going to drop a little video knowledge on you about that uh, coming this week. All right. So in the meantime, please take care of yourselves. Please consider others. And I will talk to you folks soon. Thanks so much.